All right, then. Gear up and start the mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Spies, Real Lives, Episode 12. Today, we're going to be talking about my new book that's coming out on October the 1st, the first book of a trilogy entitled Self-Inflicted Wounds. The book itself is entitled Welcome to Belgrade, and I'm talking the old Yugoslavia. We've been talking about Yugoslavia a little with the reader magnet that I read some excerpts from the past few weeks. The reader magnet was Dateline Belgrade, and it was a series of made-up news articles, not fake news, but news articles that fit the theme of the trilogy, which involves the investigation into a series of political murders in Yugoslavia that spanned a decade and kind of came to a head in the year 2000. So again, this is the 12th episode of Real Spies, Real Lives. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan, and we're going to start out today by talking about a man named Arkin. If you followed the Balkan Wars in the early 1990s, really, throughout the decade of the 1990s, you may have heard of this man, Zeljko Raznatovich, otherwise known as Arkan. He was the commander of a group of Serb paramilitaries called the Tigers. In addition to the regular Serb army, Serbia outfitted provided weapons to look the other way from sort of supported a whole group of paramilitaries. It wasn't just the Serbs. The Croats had them. The Bosnians had them. But the ones that got the most publicity were the Serbian paramilitaries, and namely Arkin. They were responsible for a lot of the ethnic cleansing. This isn't to say the Serbian army didn't do any of it. They did. But a paramilitary unit, the army can say, well, we had nothing to do with that. They were acting on their own. When in fact, they probably were acting on orders from a Serbian military commander. But Arkin was certainly the most famous, particularly after the war when he set himself up as, as he called it, a regular businessman. He operated a number of legitimate businesses around Serbia in in Belgrade, ice cream shops, internet cafes, that sort of above-the-board thing. But he was also heavily invested in the black market, was a gangster Balkan mafioso type of person, uh, married to a very successful and much-loved singer in Serbia named Seka. Her real name was Svetlana. And uh, he was interviewed by the CNN, by, by many media outlets, because he was a very vocal Serb nationalist, extremely articulate and intelligent man. 
though an ardent and very biased nationalist. He was a very nondescript man in appearance. He was on the short side, had a bit of a paunch, had receding hair, but uh, he loved to dress himself in old Serbian military uniforms. In fact, when he married his wife, his last wife, that's how he was dressed in, a, I think, a, a, like a World War One era Serbian ar uh, officer's uniform. Quite an interesting character, quite a bloodthirsty character. And he serves as the opening part of Welcome to Belgrade. Now, a lot of what comes across in this particular chapter that I'm going to read to you is true about some of the things he did. However, kidnapping my main character didn't happen, except in my imagination. And there's a bit more of the backstory to the relationship between my character, my Fisher, and Arkin. If you read my novella, the Yellow Scarf, part one of that, is is a bit more on this relationship. But when people are desperate, they will even call upon their enemies. Now, I have no proof that Arkin was ever going to turn himself over to or seek a deal from the International Criminal Tribunal for War Crimes in Yugoslavia. That is highly unlikely. He hated the tribunal didn't believe in what it was doing, thought, like many Serbians, that the tribunal was being unfair to Serbians and not anyone else. But again, I'm a fiction writer. I get to take some dramatic license, particularly with a person who is no longer with us, because he was one of the victims of this string of political murders in Yugoslavia in January of 2000. In fact, when I read that, I was intrigued. He was such a hero to so many Serbian people that I could never imagine that another Serb would have murdered him, even given his underground and illegal business dealings. It just didn't seem possible that, that he would be murdered in so public a place and in public, as a matter of fact. So the setting and the circumstances are authentic. The conversation between him and my character is, of course, what constitutes the fiction. So let's get started with Chapter 1 of Welcome to Belgrade. Small Talk Belgrade, Yugoslavia, Belgrade Intercontinental Hotel, January 2000 from the corner of his eye, the doorman saw the large black Mercedes approach. Lights from the city's New Year's decorations reflected off its mirror finish, almost brighter than the lights themselves. Straightening from his slouch against the wall, he rubbed his gloveless hands together to warm them. The Mercedes stopped before him, and he murmured a quick prayer. The car had no dents or scratches, no obvious bullet holes the possibility of a decent tip chased the cold away. He hustled to open the door, and a woman emerged. She ignored his offered hand. She wore sunglasses in the dark, and her door mouth was a straight line. 
His hopes for that tip took a bit of a dive. But something touched his palm. Closing his fingers around what rested there, he recognized aristocracy in the subtlety of her gesture. The doorman shut the car's door and jogged to get ahead of the woman. He held the hotel's ornate door open for her, and the second pressure in his hand lifted his spirits. To acknowledge her generosity would be obsequious. He murmured, Good evening, as he pocketed both tips. She slid past him without eye contact. The Mercedes pulled ahead so it no longer blocked the entrance and sat, idling, its exhaust a billowing cloud in the chill air. The lobby offered all the usual activities of a major hotel in a European capital city. To escape the weather, a uniformed policeman sat at a table in the lounge facing the entrance. He nursed a cup of coffee and watched one of the waitresses on her travels about the room. Their body language proclaiming their interest in each other, a man and a woman, sat at the opposite end of the lounge from the policeman. People checked in, others strolled about, entering or leaving the lounge, perhaps using the lobby to elude the frigid night. Curious faces turned toward the door when a blast of cold air accompanied the woman's entrance. They all resumed their previous engagements after determining their disinterest. She wasn't dressed like a curva, looking for her next John, but in her all-black attire she blended well with any other person who'd be out and about on the streets of Belgrade in the middle of the night. The policeman's eyes stayed on her longest, but when she mounted the three steps to a private alcove in the lounge, he quickly looked away. The elevated alcove allowed its occupant to see everything and everyone in the lobby. The better furniture was there. Leather sofas, plush chairs. Most of them were empty. One man sat in the largest of the chairs, a perimeter of unoccupied seats and a semicircle of bodyguards around him. With no hint of expression, the bodyguards watched her approach, eyes on her hands, their hands inside coats ready for their weapons if she reached for hers. The seated man narrowed his eyes at her, a hint of a smile on his mouth. Zelyuko Raznatovich, a.k.a. Arkin, wasn't a tall man, but he loomed as a nationalist hero to Serbs and a monster to Bosnian Muslims. His physical appearance, sans uniform, was nondescript. The cut of the expensive suit hid his slight paunch. His close-cropped hair had started to recede, but the cut was from an expensive stylist, no doubt. He dressed like the simple businessman he proclaimed to be. He attributed his wealth to a string of ice cream parlors and internet cafes, but in addition to having been one of Belgrade's top ethnic cleansers, he was a leader in Belgrade's underworld. More likely that fortune came from selling tax-free cigarettes, bootleg videos and CDs, and contraband gasoline. His bland, almost boyish face was a familiar one at the hotel, where he sometimes conducted his public meetings. When the woman reached him, he stood. His men shifted closer when she removed and pocketed her sunglasses, revealing her hard-set, uncompromising face. Raznatovich's eyes roamed her body, 
hidden behind a long leather coat. His gaze settled on the twin streaks of white in her hair, one at each temple, markers of having been his prisoner eight years before. He smiled at her, waved his men back to the shadows around the bar, and put his fate in her hands. Keeping her face expressionless was an exercise in control, but when Arkin moved to greet her Serbian-style kisses on both cheeks, she backed up a step. Please, Arkin said, if we do not greet each other the right way, people will suspect this is a personal meeting, and neither of us wants that. She stiffened when his hands gripped her upper arms, but she gave no reaction when he kissed her cheeks, his lips lingering. With a silent vow to scrub her face after she left, she returned the gesture. Arkin motioned to the chair next to his, and she sat, crossing her legs at the knee and letting her gloved hands rest in her lap. Arkin sat and summoned a waitress with a flick of his fingers. You want something to drink? he asked. After her silence, he added, Remember, this must look like business, not pleasure. Whiskey. Neat, she said. Arkin told the waitress what to bring, handed her a U.S. $20 bill, and waved off the change. You take much convincing to have simple meeting, Arkin said in his passable English. I consider the souls. Arkin's boisterous laugh was for show. To demonstrate to anyone watching, their encounter was nothing more than two business associates well met. I am merely a businessman, nothing more, he said. Yes, that reads well in the state press, she replied. Her dark eyes became flints. In Serbian, she added, You're a fucking butcher, nothing more. I'm here, talk. Even the fake humor left his eyes. I remember it is always so intense with you, no small talk. I pity your whipped husband. He must never get to be on top when you fuck. Why am I here? Arkin's sigh of exasperation was as affected as his laughter. Small talk. We must do small talk. Then we drink, perhaps dinner, seal deal, as you say. She didn't reply, and the silence expanded between them. She didn't reply, and the silence expanded between them. A smile hovering at his lips, his eyes watched her face for a reaction. How old is that child now? he asked. The one you so rigorously protected inside you when you were my guest. Seven, eight? That was in ninety-two, eight this year, am I right? Was it a boy or a girl? She was glad the look she gave him made a bodyguard step closer. But Arkin held up a hand. Oh, he murmured. There must have been an unfortunate accident. That is too bad because, of course, you are too old for another. She stood and the bodyguards, all of them, rushed toward her. Again, Arkin's casual lifting of a hand stopped them. My apologies, he said, for bringing up bad memories. He didn't bother to put any forced sincerity behind it. Sit, 
Hear what I have to say. She looked at the bodyguards. Arkin waved his hand yet again, and they backed away. She waited long enough to sit that he wouldn't think she'd obeyed him. She'd had more than enough of that eight years ago. When she settled beside him again, Arkin leaned sideways toward her. I want a guarantee from the War Crimes Tribunal, he said, his voice low. Of what? A noose around your neck? Arkin smirked at her but said nothing when the waitress appeared. She placed the drink on the small table between the two chairs and backed away. Fortunately for me, Arkin continued, the tribunal has no death penalty. Here is what I want. A no-prosecution guarantee. A new identity for me and my wife. All of my assets, whether in-country or outside, available to me. And in exchange, you get whatever you need on... He smiled at her. You know who. Why would you do that? I am a religious man. Her laughter was more like a bark. But... I do not believe in coincidence. I believe in God's will, you might say, but God is not here on earth. You are. My fate is your responsibility now. Are you sure you want to do that? She asked. The past is the past. It cannot be changed. Look, I have zero interest in either a religious discussion with you, of all people, or a philosophical debate. Why the fuck am I here? His unassuming face scrunched in anger and conjured a memory of being his prisoner. Again, it took all of her control not to cross her arms over her now flat belly. When she'd been his prisoner, he'd battered her back, never her stomach. He wouldn't have harmed the unborn child, the one his then mistress wanted as hers. The fingers of her right hand curled as if gripping a gun. Arkin leaned back in his chair, cleared his throat, and spoke again. Let me explain. The other day my wife is on television talk show. Publicity for her new CD. You want a copy? It is her best work. Her new video is fantastic. I produced it myself to do her justice. She is here in the hotel. I had them open the boutique so she could shop while we talk. She could autograph it for you. The woman gave him her bored face and made a show of looking at her watch. All right, all right. At this talk show, I am an audience. People call into the show, ask questions. This bastard calls in. If I ever find out who he was, I will... He caught himself and continued. Anyway, this bastard says, You will look prettier than Gotcha in black. I have no clue what you're talking about. Gotcha is another singer. Not as good as my wife. Anyway, this bastard says my wife will look prettier wearing black. So? Arkin glared at her but spelled it out for her. Are you stupid suddenly? Gotcha's lover was killed. That's why she was wearing black. Oh, he was a drug dealer. A dangerous profession, especially when you stiff your Russian supplier. Now, could you get on with this fairy tale? Remember, we are making the small talk. Next, this caller says, 
Arkin, you'll need a coat where you are going. He leaned toward her again, his face expectant. Did I miss something? What is colder than death? Well, nothing I can think of. She smiled for the first time, though, like Arkin, it never made it to her eyes. Feeling a chill, Arkin? Do not try to be comedian. It was a threat. In the past week, two of my uh, business partners were gunned down in the street, in front of their families. Well, I heard you eliminated them. I did not. They were killed to tell me I'm next. A gangland war you brought on yourself is not the concern of the tribunal or me. No, listen to me. I did this regime's dirty work. Now, I'm too dangerous to let live. He swiped a finger over his upper lip. Arkin was sweating. No, Arkin was scared. I will prove this, Arkin said, voice lowered again. Do you know who the current interior minister is? Yes. He ran me. Is that not what you spies say? He ran me, handled me? She shook her head. Arkin, I'm aware of your government structure, then and now. You were run by Serbian state security, headed by Dusko Bogdanovich, and Frankie Sematovich handled you. An organization chart, yes, that is how it appeared. What no one saw, yes, was direct connection between Bogdanovich and Interior Minister. You're saying state security and the Interior Ministry were connected. Here, I will show you. Arkin took one of the extra cocktail napkins from beside the untouched drink. With a pen from his pocket, he drew a rectangle on the unfolded paper. Below it, he drew two more, side by side, one slightly lower than the other. Inside the higher box, he wrote MUP, the Serbian initials for the Interior Ministry. In the lower one, he wrote RDB, Serbian State Security. Below the RDB box, he drew several smaller rectangles. In the first box below RDB, he wrote Samatovic, and in the boxes under Samatovic, he wrote the names of the various Serbian paramilitary groups, including his own, the Tigers. With short, bold strokes, he connected all the boxes to RDB through Samatovic. Okay, he said, looking up at her, his face like an eager child. Uncertain where he was headed with this, she nodded, and gave a quick glance around the lobby. Everything looked the same. All right now, Arkin said, drawing a solid line between the RDB and the MUP boxes. You see, those two look like RDB reports to MUP, but he connected the MUP box to the empty rectangle at the top of the paper. What I am showing you now you will never see in official documents or on government website, but... He drew a dotted line from the RDB box to the top box. There was, how you say it, unofficial informal connection, direct connection to the top. Her heart sped up in anticipation as she put it together. And the empty boxes? Arkin looked at her again, his face drawn and serious. 
Who does M.U.P. report to? he asked. When she said nothing, he poised the pen over the empty box. This time his smile was triumphant, self-indulgent. Do I have to spell it out? In the empty box he wrote a single letter, M. She studied the organizational chart, taking it in. Absent the dotted line from the RDB to the M-box, it followed the Yugoslavian government organization. She pointed to the dotted line. You have proof of this, she asked. I kept all my dispatches, my orders, but you will get them only after I have deal with tribunal. Whatever, she thought. She pointed to the M-box and looked him in the eye. You're saying this person told RDB directly what he wanted done and left MUP out of the loop? Arkin nodded. RDB told Sumatovich. Sumatovich told me, and I got it done. Now, this is for Kosovo. For Bosnia, it was Stojicic we went around. The previous interior minister, who is now dead, assassinated. Remember, I do not believe in coincidence. He put the tip of his pen on the dotted line. This is connection tribunal has been unable to make. I can make it for them with right deal. Yes, God, yes, she thought. But she had to hang on to her skepticism a bit longer. She couldn't believe Arkin would do something so moral. Frankly, Arkin, she said, you've blackmailed so many people, cheated a lot more. That's likely where this threat comes from, not the regime that considers you one of its biggest heroes. He shook his head and leaned toward her again, almost lifting himself from his chair. No, no. I am this regime's liability. I know too much. I want protection from tribunal. I will tell them what I told you with proof, but I won't deal first. He studied her face. You are not surprised. Rats always turn on each other when the walls close in. Look, I don't make the deals, but I can take your offer back and see what they're willing to do. To help them decide, they will want to review a sample of your information. Think of it as quality assurance. If I give you this, you will be my advocate, yes? She pushed irony aside and replied, I can be persuasive, but what you give me will have to be good, exceptionally good. Arkin again relaxed in his chair, smiling. He flicked his fingers at one bodyguard one more time, who came forward, hands slowly slipping inside his jacket. The hand emerged, holding a thick business-sized envelope. At Arkin's nod, he put it on the table next to the drawing. Inside there is what you will need to find the Burko Seven, including Yanko Janich. He hides well, but there is a contingency. He has a cousin who is an Orthodox priest and who likes little boys, little Muslim boys, who do not um, survive his affections. Arkin smiled at that, his eyes glittering, much as she remembered seeing after an ethnic cleansing episode. There are plenty of pictures, he added. She struggled to keep from grasping the envelope. Arkin knew the significance of the Burko Seven, especially to her. Seven Serb militiamen from the same village, 
who in the Bosnian Wars had collected women and girls for their rape camp. Three of those women had been relief workers for Euro Enterprises, the refugee organization which served as her cover. That convinced her Arkin was serious. No, he was running scared. Once the most feared man in Yugoslavia, a man whose nom de guerre was used to frighten children still, Arkin was terrified. What new intrigue in Yugoslavia would be enough to spook him? Not mafia, Serbian or Russian. He owned the former and loyally served the latter. The MUP? The secret police? Most of his former men had found gainful employment among its special operations units and would never betray their hero. Her eyes went to the drawing, to the box with the letter M. Milosevic. Arkin was afraid of Milosevic. Ah, Arkin said, smiling. You thought this was trap, yes? Please, I have long ago forgiven you. Forgiven me, she thought, but pushed that anger aside. I am thinking, Arkin said, that perhaps my wife and I go with you tonight. Now. Before she could reply, a voice called from across the lobby, Arkin! All right, we'll pause here before we move on, just to do a little bit of an, of an ad, as it were. The sale on the reader magnet, the special introductory price of 99 cents, will conclude on August the 31st. But the good news is, Welcome to Belgrade, which is what I'm reading from, is now available for pre-order. It launches on October the 1st, but you can reserve your copy now. I believe it's $3.99 in Kindle, which is a bargain. I priced it below the typical Kindle price so that people would rush out to reserve it to show up on their Kindles on October 1st, and for the next few weeks, I'm going to be reading from it. And another reminder, there's also my newsletter, Secret Briefings, where I generally feature the title of a book that I'm reading, giving a little review, or I feature an author with a new release. I will give you some espionage trivia, usually about Washington, D.C., where I worked for the most part of 30 years, next to all these fascinating sites that were used by spies, and I really didn't know anything about it until many, many years later. And I will typically give you a free excerpt from an upcoming book. The newsletters have been publishing bits from Welcome to Belgrade for a while now, so you can sign up to to get some more free excerpts other than what I'm reading here. So I'd appreciate it if you'd go take a look at my Amazon author page, which is amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-D-U-N-C-A-N. 
and I don't have the URL for the pre-order of Welcome to Belgrade off the top of my head, but I will have it by next week. Uh, you've got plenty of time. You've cut between now and October 1st to pre-order it. So, and I'm sure you'll hear me say it several more times. If you like listening to the podcast, and apparently some people do because the audience is growing, that makes me feel pretty good. Tell your friends about it and follow it on Spotify or iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Radio Public. There's several more. And I'm trying to add more podcast distributors as it goes on. It's free. I'm not even doing the thing where I've monetized it yet because I'm just, I'm honestly not terribly interested in that. I simply want to talk about my books and about a subject that fascinates me, espionage. And I don't really look upon it as a money-making opportunity. So take a look at my books, take a look at the newsletter, give it a try. You can always unsubscribe very easily if you decide you don't like it. And tell your friends about podcast. All right. Let's find out what happened to Arkin. Chapter 2 It All Happened So Fast Later, when she would peruse the newspapers and television news shows for any mention of a mysterious woman at the Intercontinental that night, she would chide herself for being so focused on what Arkin was about to give her that she didn't recognize the threat when it entered. She'd blame herself as well for the desk job she'd held for a year leading up to this, for letting that diminish her skills, for letting pleasing someone else cost her the coup of a lifetime. Had she been on her game, the game she'd played since she was 15 years old, she'd have scored the biggest asset. But she hadn't. Arkin! Four young men clad in ill-fitting jogging suits. Each had a gym bag. Their shaven bald heads gleamed like beacons in the lobby's bright lights. The man who shouted Arkin's name flashed the three-finger Serb victory salute. Her hand reached to stop Arkin from responding in kind, but he was too fast. He had to respond, she knew. He couldn't ignore such an acknowledgement of his wartime accomplishments. I told you that was the famous Arkin one of the men said to the other three. His voice carried across the lobby, as if he wanted Arkin to hear. The hackles on her neck rose, and Arkin's bodyguards moved forward, hands slipping beneath their coats to grip their weapons. She did the same. The bodyguards, who watched the hotel's entrance, edged closer. Arkin sat still, as if it were nothing. She peered at his pricey white shirt beneath his expensive suit jacket. No body armor. The lobby had gone dead silent, but rang from anticipation. Patrons and employees froze in mid-motion. The four men approached. Aachen, she began. Say, brother, the tallest of the four men said, is the fitness center open now? Arkin looked at her, eyes narrowed. She gave him a slight shake of her head. I don't know, she telegraphed. Arkin stood, 
and she did with him. She made one of those decisions from instinct and not sense. She put herself between him and the four men. The men looked her over and laughed, muttering among themselves. Arkin stepped around her. The fitness center is closed now, he said, but I can have it opened. For you, no problem, my pleasure. All four men pulled HK-53s from their gym bags. Arkin's men drew scorpions. Proverbial hell broke loose. The assailants and bodyguards opened up with no thought to the lobby's occupants, but the average Belgrader had become so inured to violence the second weapons appeared everyone dived for what cover they could find. The policeman hesitated. He was woefully outgunned, but approached with his gun drawn. One of Arkin's men shot him. As he fell screaming, the policeman fired wildly. Arkin stepped forward. Come get me, cowards! She tried to pull him back, surprising herself with the effort. One of the men smiled and turned his gun on Arkin. She drew hers and shot the man but one of his friends responded with two shots in her direction. One missed, and her ballistic vest absorbed the impact of the other. However, that staggered her, and she and her chair toppled over. She huddled for a moment behind the scant cover, struggling to breathe, to get in enough air to shout at Arkin to get down. Above the gunfire was the sound of a woman's voice screaming, Zeliakol! Zeliakol! In Serbian now, Arkin tossed insult after insult at the two men, using metaphors she'd not heard before. One of the men stepped forward to the bottom of the triple-step stair, raised his weapon, and single-shot Arkin in the left eye. The butcher of Bosnia toppled backward like a fell tree, his head smacking the marble floor with a pop. The shooter climbed the steps and put two more rounds into Arkin's head. She finally got a full breath in and started to rise, her gun leveled at the shooter. He looked at her, shook his head, and shouted to his friends, Time to go! Why had he spared a witness, she wondered, but was thankful she wasn't emptying her brains on the floor beside Arkin. The man she'd shot writhed on the floor, and Arkin's shooter strode over to him and put two more rounds in him. The wounded man stilled. The three men now pointed their guns around them and walked, their pace almost casual, to the front entrance. No one stopped them. One surviving bodyguard crawled from cover and fired at nothing, from failure and frustration, and she stayed low until he stopped. The center of her chest ached as if she'd been kicked by a horse, and deep breathing was out of the question. Sound crept back in, sobbing, moaning, glass crunching under fleeing people's feet. A disembodied voice crackled from the wounded policeman's radio, inquiring if he needed backup. He sobbed into his mic in response. She holstered her gun and gained her feet, hunched over because, damn, getting shot hurt. Let me go, screamed a woman her long dark hair flailing about as she struggled with a bodyguard. Arkin's wife broke free and ran to her husband. 
she knelt in his blood and began to curse and keen alternately. How many times had Arkin stood over a corpse as a wife sobbed in grief? The woman he thought would save his life had witnessed it a dozen times, maybe more. Wake up, wake up, Arkin's wife implored. The other woman's eyes strayed to the now overturned table. All was not lost. She stepped behind the toppled chair and plucked the envelope Arkin had offered her from the glass table's debris. Her eyes searched about the mess. There, the cocktail napkin with Arkin's drawing, not the greatest evidence, but the tribunal had samples of his handwriting. It was intact, near Arkin's head, the spreading pool of blood seeping toward it. She got to it before he could soak up any of its author's blood. Mascara streaking her cheeks from her weeping, the wife looked up at her, her lips pulled back like a wolf about to bite. You bitch! Help him! He said you would help him! When she got no response, she spat and missed. You did this. You got your revenge, bitch! No. If I'd wanted him dead, I'd have shot him myself. And I don't know what stopped me, she thought. The wife screamed something inarticulate and got to her feet. At some point, she'd lost one of her stilettos, and Arkin's blood stained her trademark white clothing and fur coat. Between sobs, she shouted for the bodyguards to come help her, but the ones who weren't dead or dying had pursued the shooters. She bent down, grasped him with both hands by his collar, and began to pull his body. It slid down the three steps as if boneless, and still with only one shoe, she hobbled toward the entrance, pulling his body and leaving an obscene swath of blood on the gleaming floor. The other woman didn't have to ask where the back exit was. She never would have come inside if she hadn't known that. The wife's scream followed her. He said you would help him. I did, she thought about as much as he helped my unborn child. With little urging, the Mercedes driver had my Fisher well away from the scene when the police arrived. Again, later, she would discover the whole thing had taken considerably less than half a minute. One second she and Arkin discussed his surrender to the tribunal. A few seconds later, he lay dead at her feet, and the witnesses would say, It all happened so fast, and no, we didn't really see anything, you know. It all happened so fast. You know, I've taken a lot of writer courses, um, particularly how to write genre fiction from many different genre writers, uh, thriller writers, some well-known and, and some of medium success. And the one thing I was told in one of those workshops was that, that I took a scholarly approach to things, that I would set something up, that I needed to start a thriller with a bang, almost literally. And I tried not to give in to that sort of commercial fiction trope, but sometimes you can't help it. And this particular event, Arkin's murder in the Intercontinental Hotel in Belgrade, 
in January of 2000 certainly lent itself to an opening scene in a novel. So I gave in and opened my thriller literally with a bang. So I hope this gives you a taste of what's to come over the next three books in the trilogy, Self-Inflicted Wounds. As with anything that happens in the Balkans and with any sort of espionage operation, it is convoluted and complex. And I've done my best to try to bring it down. Well, that's, that's not a good thing to say, not bring it down, but present it in a way that's a little bit more challenging and a little less pedantic. As I've talked about with the Balkans, it's an extremely complex area of the world. It's been the cause of so many wars. It has so many conflicting cultures and ethnicities that it, it is a fascinating part of the world. But nothing is ever easy there. And that's certainly the case with this trilogy, Self-Inflicted Wounds. This is another piece of fiction that I've taken years to write. I started it in 2001, and actually it was, a, <laughs> it was as a result of meeting someone from a not-to-be-named intelligence agency when I was on a task force for my agency. Nothing classified. The fact that there was a tax, task force isn't classified, but some of the things we talked about were. But anyway, I met this fascinating person, and I would ask him questions about being a spy. And, of course, he would want to know why. And he was very, as you might expect, noncommittal with his replies. And I told him that it was my ambition one day to write realistic spy stories. So one day before a meeting, he says to me, have I got an idea for you to write a book about? I said, okay, what is it? And he said, I even have the title for you. And I said, okay, what is it? And he said, who is killing the friends of Slobodan Milosevic? And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, read the news. Not United States news because it never, it never hits, you know, local news or U.S. news. Read the BBC or read, you know, a European, go look at a European broadcast in, in English. And so I did. And in doing so, I, I learned of Arkin's murder. I think I had vaguely remembered hearing about it on CNN. He, Arkin was a significant enough personality that, you know, his death made CNN. And I, I found out that over the last decade, there had been an increasing number of murders of minor and major government officials, magistrates, police, uh, highly placed police officers, journalists in Yugoslavia. And the interesting connection about them was that a lot of them, most of them, had been associates of or outright 
friends of the Serbian or the Yugoslavian president, Slobodan Milosevic. So knowing of my fascination with the Balkans, my friend told me about this and gave me the idea to begin researching. Now, the Google was a toddler then, but I was able to get enough from from Google and Ask. You know, there used to be Ask.com and Yahoo News and a lot of the European media who were putting English versions of their stories on the internet. I was able to get a lot of information, read a lot of books, as I usually do on the subject, to the point where the uh, people who worked for me were, would be like, are you going to talk about the Balkans again today, or are we going to do something, you know, aviation related? But that's just the way I am. I get enthused about something, and I want to share it with everyone. My then husband was like, would nod very politely and make me believe he was engaged in the conversation. But okay, that's the first chapter of Welcome to Belgrade. I'm probably going to read a few more before I move on to the second book, which is called Dangerous Truths, and it will be out on November the 1st. Probably next time I'll explain a little bit about why I have three books coming out in three months and why I decided to do a little experiment with something called flash publishing. So we'll see you again next week. I hope you'll come back and listen. And remember, keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.